All right. Well, thank you again for joining me on uh, this episode, this kind of last minute live uh, episode of The Freed Thinker. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Um, on this episode, I'm going to go through part two of the intellectual reasons uh, for my deconversion. This is a rather large uh, scripted show. I had a lot I wanted to say and I wanted to get it down um, uh, on uh, on paper the way that I wanted to phrase it. I do have some episodes coming up in the next coming weeks dealing with issues like divine hiddenness, um, uh, uh, divine determinism and compatibilism and things like that. So please keep your eyes out. Um, we do have a couple episodes on the books. There is one coming up uh, this Friday uh, with Matt uh, Salee. Uh, I, I think I, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name. I've only ever seen it uh, in print and I I know I've heard it, but I don't recall. But I uh, have that episode coming up uh, this coming uh, Friday evening. Uh, for those of you who are in California time, it's about 8.30 p.m. California time. Sorry for those of you on the East Coast. Okay, so with that, uh, I want to jump in um, and, and go through some of my comments about, um, I, again, my recent deconversion. This will be the last episode I do uh, specifically about my deconversion, the reasons for it. Here on out, the content is going to be these issues that I bring up. So talking about divine hiddenness. I'll have content about divine hiddenness. It's not really going to be tied to my deconversion uh, anymore. So uh, just so you all are aware of that. Uh, but this is the, the final part two that I wanted to get to. Okay, so with that, uh, also please leave your comments uh, and your questions. I will interact with them at the very end, whatever's in there. If you have a question, uh, put it in all caps questions and I'll read it when I get uh, to it at the end. Okay, so with that. In my last episode, I began laying out the intellectual reasons that led to my deconversion from my long-held Christian beliefs. Primarily, the issue that I laid out had to do with the way Yahweh in the Bible seemed out of accord with the high view of God, of the God of classical theism. And considering that I think we have very strong arguments for classical theism and one of them uh, had to give, the very terrestrial, very finite, capricious behavior of Yahweh lost out. That was the bulk of the last episode. But in this episode, I'm going to give other reasons uh, that caused me to question, doubt, and finally reject Christianity. However, I'd like to first add that I acknowledge that none of the arguments or objections or data points that I mentioned last time or will in this episode are a singular defeater for Christianity. There isn't a silver bullet that I think falsifies the Christian faith. Rather, it's similar to the cumulative case for Christianity. It's, um, it's, it's a heap of arguments and evidences and improbabilities that finally piled up to the very gates of heaven only to find the throne room empty after all. So it's not as though there was some singular fact or argument that falsified my Christian faith. And I still don't think that it's somehow demonstrably false or foolish or irrational or anything like that um, or anything like what many online atheists will claim. But I found the pile of objections just became so high and the sheer volume of explanations needed to dispatch them so great that I could not overcome them all, or at least the sinking feeling that the whole thing was a put-up job. In addition, many explanations were in conflict with one another uh, and with other explanations that were needed to hold other parts of the rug down on the other side of the worldview room. Or at least they caused tensions for other answers such that affirming both didn't seem satisfactory. For example, that actual infinities could not exist to defend God as the creator who created ex nihilo in the finite past. With the Christian conception of heaven, as a potentially infinite set of experience, but for which God would know completely, which would be an actually infinite set. Or the contrast and answers of God being all loving and wanting all to be saved, then drowning all humanity in wrath. Here, I just kept thinking, okay, but if I as a sinful father, and I can still love my children, even discipline them, but not punish them to the point of utter extinguishment. Surely God, who is love, would be able to do that. Remember, God isn't just maximally loving on the biblical view. God is love. Whatever love is, is what God is. So even the creator-creature distinction doesn't work here because God does not seem to get a special out on this one for being God while we're not. 
Because if I'm properly loving my kids by not punishing them to that degree, and that is what love is, then that just is what God is. So God couldn't be loving in a different way than us, and in fact, in a diametrically opposite way of us, because insofar as we love, we just are reflecting God more. But here, I love my kids by precisely not exterminating them, even when they deserve some kind of punishment. But that's just an example, and I'll get to more later. I'll continue laying out some of the obstacles again, but I want to remind my audience that I'm not here giving all of the reasons for or against these objections. Remember, like in my last episode, I'm not fully interacting with these ideas and handling rejoinders or engaging the responses that could be given to them. I'm I'm simply going to handle these in more detail later, and I've thought about these things in detail over the years. So please don't think that I'm just like ignoring them or whitewashing them. So for the sake of this episode, I'm simply laying a broad case for the kinds of reasons that led me to reject my prior Christian faith. In addition, I want to address a common accusation that I've received in places where I've started to discuss these issues recently, and that is people saying that I've become an atheist or I'm using the same arguments as atheists or atheistic arguments. Once again, I'm not an atheist. I believe there is one God, a creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent, spirit, immutable, assay, simple, and impassable, and even providentially guiding all of human affairs, living and active. I'm a theist, and a classical theist at that, through and through, and pretty unashamed about it. I'm not even a deist. So to say that I'm an atheist is not only wildly uncharitable, it's honestly just dumb. But I'm but am I making the same arguments as atheists? Are they atheistic arguments? Well, I'm making the same arguments, but they're not atheistic arguments. I don't think that they're atheistic and I'm not an atheist. I don't think atheistically. I do now have some serious objections to Christian theology and the overall biblical view of the world specific passages, biblical theology, and so forth. And these objections are shared by theists like myself, deists, polytheists, agnostics, and atheists alike. Anyone who rejects these aspects of the Bible will have similar objections. But does that make them atheistic? No. And is there some kind of guilt by association defeater to my objections that can be validly levied by saying that, you know, that's the same objection that atheists give? I mean, not if you want to give reasonable responses that aren't just logical fallacies. I mean, imagine an atheist was debating with you as a Christian and the Christian used the Kalam argument for God as an example. Let's say you use the Kalam. Would it be meaningful that for the atheist to say, well, you're just giving an Islamic argument because the Kalam was first proposed by an Islamic philosopher? I mean, that would just be like a silly rejoinder. So too, I'm giving objections to what we see in the Bible and theological inconsistencies, even if atheists also use the same argument, that simply isn't a valid defeater to say, well, that's just an atheistic argument. Okay, so with that out of the way, let me dive into a few more of the main reasons that I came to reject my previous Christian worldview. First, I began to notice a lot of inconsistencies or amalgamations that just became so messy to hold and to defend that they caused me more questions than answers. And often the questions weren't of the, well, that's interesting. I wonder what lays below the surface of that variety, but were rather of the, okay, but how is that even coherent variety? I started to call these blessed inconsistencies and examples are things like the Trinity, the hypostatic union, Jesus's teaching, which was very kingdom focused, had a high emphasis on Torah keeping, was very eschatological and very soteriologically underdeveloped versus Paul's highly systematic very soteriological, almost no mention of the kingdom, and nearly Torah-rejecting, theologized view of the gospel. Honestly, the gospel of Jesus in the gospels and the gospel of Paul in his letters seem like they weren't even talking about the same thing sometimes. And the later general epistles didn't seem to fit either of them. 
In addition, I started having problems reconciling the Trinity. Again, not in the apprehension versus comprehension way, but in the that actually seems logically incoherent way. And I don't mean that in the trivial ways that many critics of the Trinity would propose, like, well, if God is three persons, then you're saying it's three gods, and that's a contradiction. No. The distinction between one what and three who's seems entirely valid to me. I get it. So that's not the issue. But what did, what did and does seem problematic was the relationship between the three and talking about things like the eternal generation of the Son or the procession of the Spirit, but of which causes problems for the view. But then, if I don't accept those things, like the Eastern Orthodox churches don't, then drawing a distinction between the persons becomes problematic, especially in light of Jesus' comments that he does come from the Father and he does send the Spirit. And all of those things cause huge problems for any meaningful conception of divine simplicity. Now, the open theist and the non-classical theist will agree and think that we ought to jettison classical theism. However, as I stated last time, I just think the best arguments for God just are arguments that require or at least entail something like classical theism simpliciter, and it is the mangled mess of Christian theology that seems to add the unnecessary problems with very little justification for them. Here, I would also state once again that during this time, I was noticing that nearly all the arguments from Christians, theologians, apologists, and so forth, that seemed to be sound, I I think that were, or that were robust, robust refutations of naturalism or positive cases for theism were just that. They were positive cases for theism, generally. Outside of something like the minimal facts argument for the resurrection, and maybe the maximal argument, but that seems to have other problems, I'm not aware of a single sound or even interesting argument that demonstrates that Christianity specifically is true or even plausibly true. Unless one wants to admit things like appeals to personal experience or just appeals to historical majority, which I honestly get why those can be added as data points in a cumulative case. I just don't think they're enough to get me there anymore. So when I surveyed all of the arguments and evidences and data, theism just seemed unavoidable. And all of the conflict and problems came from the affirmation of Christianity. It's like if you have a house and every month or so a fire starts in the house. And every time without fail, the fire is started by the refrigerator in the garage there comes a point where you just remove that refrigerator. You don't sit around and think, well, that refrigerator has been around for a long time and lots of people like it, so I should burn down the rest of the house and keep the refrigerator. Like, why would I go along with the open theist, burn down classical theism, and keep the thing that keeps raising all the problems? That just doesn't seem to be a rational way to go. Now, Further friction arose around the biblical tension between emotion versus intellect. And I talked about this previously. On the one hand, God created us to be emotive creatures. And much of the Bible is a call to our emotions. It's really an emotional book. And that's fine. But then when we are also told that the, the heart is desperately wicked and can't be trusted... When I started doubting and spoke with people about it, the responses I got were weird. On the one hand, if I let my emotions influence my decisions or my thinking at all, well, then I was being emotional and I can't trust my feelings and your heart's desperately wicked and you just need to give in and, you know, fideistically trust in God. But on the other hand, if I just read the Bible, but I had questions and I tried to understand the theological or philosophical possible solutions... Well, then I was trusting the thinking of man and I was using worldly philosophy and all that kind of stuff. There's a kind of no-win view of the constitution of man in Christian theology that we should be emotionally less emotional and fideistically rational. Further, I started having a lot of issues with the simple fact that God acted and did things in the Bible, but just doesn't do it now, even though if he did, it would solve so many of the issues. It's kind of it's, it's a kind of improbable silence on God's part, but in ways that we know he could 
and did act those ways before. We're told that on the one hand, we cannot expect to see miracles from God to confirm faith because then it it wouldn't be real faith. Or look at those people who had miracles in the Bible and they didn't believe. Or you cannot demand things from God. And those are the reasons given by apologists for why we shouldn't expect to see miracles. But think of the response to the hiddenness objection. That if God was so present, then he would somehow, then somehow we'd be forced into belief. And what God really wants is sincere faith, which to be honest, I don't know what that means. Since as I've discussed before, I I think faith in the Bible exegetically is a volitional act of trusting. It's yes, it's a, it's a reasonable thing, but it's, it's the act of putting your trust in something. It's the boarding the plane. It's the getting married. I can't unsincerely board the airplane. I either board it or I don't. So apparently God being present and working miracles would not lead to true or sincere faith. But think about that. On the other hand, the central faith-making claim of Christianity that sets it apart from all other religions just is the coming out of hiding incarnation of God himself to perform a public miracle that is to be affirmed and attested by those who witnessed it. So which is it? Are miracles not good for grounding real faith, or are they necessary for grounding real faith? Do miracles that reveal God make people have insincere faith because they're forced to believe, and so God won't do those kinds of miracles? Or does God do those kind of miracles as the core tenet of the Christian faith, despite that some won't believe in the true faith because more people will? You can't have it both ways. Or, or think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They sold their land and then gave half the proceeds to the church. Half. But they lied and said they gave all of the proceeds. Okay, so Peter rebuked them and then God struck them dead. Now, did they defraud the church? No. Not really. It's not like they stole from the church. They weren't embezzling money from the tithes. They gave a 50% tithe from a land sale. They just lied and said that they gave 100%. Now, is that dishonest and vain and maybe wanting to look more generous than they are? Sure. Worthy of being struck dead by God? I mean, I don't think so. And if you say yes then why does God not strike people dead today who not only lie about what they tithe, which I guarantee is a lot of people, but who actually defraud and steal from the church, who steal from it and use the church to defraud and further steal from the poor, ostensibly the very ones the church is expressly commissioned by God to care for, or who use the power of the church to protect pedophiles and rapists and such. I mean, imagine the faith that people would have in the church and the trust that they would have in the church and in in God and in the purity of the institution itself if God actually policed its borders today like he did in Acts 5. And why not? Well, the answer will be, you know, unavoidably, that in Acts, it was the early church, and God was protecting it and establishing it with a sign at that time to establish the church. But, okay, why stop? Why not protect the peace and the purity of the church and the God-given commission of the church that he gave in the first place? Today. I mean, imagine the faith that people would have. Imagine the trust that they would have in the institution. Imagine all of the objections that people would go away that the church is abusive and money honey and greedy and doesn't care for the poor. And I mean, all of that would go away, which is a lot of times reasons people give for leaving the church in the first place. Imagine I moved into a new neighborhood with my sons and on the first night someone tried to break in. So I publicly beat and executed that person in the front yard for all to see that I was willing to do what it takes to protect my house, ignoring the illegality of all that. Imagine I could get away with it. But then I just stopped doing that. And every night for the rest of my time there, I let thieves and pedophiles come in and ravage my home and my family without stopping it like I did the first night. And the excuse that I gave was, oh, well, 
I was just establishing my house in the neighborhood when I first got there. After that, sin is sin. And I don't want to prevent the free will of my neighbors to choose to believe that I'm a good father to my family in the first place or that I'm a good neighbor. Like, how would that be a good reason? How's that a good answer? Which makes me think of another story, by the way. And I've said this one before when I actually still was a believing Christian. This was actually before my loss of faith. I used this example for to, to, to talk against people who somehow had this very watered-down, genteel version of, uh, uh, of Yahweh in the Bible. But let me say it again now from my other perspective. Imagine that I also knew in this new neighborhood that one of my neighbors was a sociopathic sadist. And one day I see him out and about while I mow my lawn and I say, hey, Joe, how you been? Have you, have you considered my oldest son? And John says, oh, sure. Or sorry, Joe says, oh, sure. But you protect him so much. I just didn't try anything. Plus, he'd be strong because he knows you protect him. But then I said, ah, no worries, Joe. I'm actually going to head out of town tonight just for the purpose of not being home so you can come kill my entire, my son's entire family, all of his friends and classmates, burn all of his toys, burn it to the ground. By the way, if you want to come back another night when he hasn't completely rejected me, you can actually inject him with every virus and anything you want, make him as sick as you can. You just can't kill him. And it'll be totally okay because in a few years, as long as he doesn't curse me for not protecting him, I'm going to give him all the classmates. I'm going to give him even more classmates, more friends, more toys than he ever had before. I'm going to replace all of his brothers and sisters. So it's totally going to be okay. How many of you would think that I was a good parent or a good human or even remotely moral in any sense of the word? Likely none. But that just is the premise of the book of Job. Or imagine that I was a judge and I claim to be the most fair and righteous judge and that I do not judge the judge's sons or punish them for the sins of their fathers. Now, not that sometimes there are not natural consequences for their sin, right? Because apologists will sometimes say that. They'll be like, oh, well, you know, if someone's an alcoholic, then there are going to be natural consequences for their, for their kids. I'm not talking about natural consequences. I'm not, I'm not talking about that type of thing. I, I'm saying, what if I, as a judge, says, I'm not going to visit the punishment on the sons for the sins of their father, right? But then you find out one day that a man stole from me. And so I have him and his entire family executed. That's the story of Achan and his family. Or you find out that once a group of guys said they didn't want to live under my household rules anymore. So I executed and burned them, their wives, their children, and all of the people in in their households, which by the way, would have included parents and cousins and servants and so forth. And I buried a ton of them alive. That's the story of Korah's rebellion. Or that because one father sinned, I make the rest of them entirely sick and, 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 and guilty and they are all punished criminals unless they repent. That's the story of the whole Bible. I could give so many examples of this, but the point is that there's huge sections of the Bible that just seem fundamentally at odds with the Christian view of the God who is love. Again, not that God is merely loving sometimes or he acts in loving ways, but that God is what love is, or rather that love is what God is. Again, think of the garden, not the normal objections that we commonly hear about the age of the earth or why God would make knowledge punishable, which I think there are good answers to. But think about why God set up his creation how he did. A lot of times, Christians seem to like conceptualize that God's just dealt these cards or they just don't think about it. They, they, you know, humans are sinful or at least to be free, they have to have the option of sinning. And then once there's sin, well, the jig is up. It's all downhill from there until Jesus comes. But think about it for a second. Why? Why did God create the cosmos that way? He didn't have to create humans with a covenant head like Adam, such that when Adam fell, so did all of his posterity into guilt and sin and death. God didn't have to create covenant representation. God didn't have to create creation corruptible by human sin. So when Adam sinned, God decided to make it such metaphysically that sin impacted nature, corrupted human flesh so that it's passed on, that there's a sinful disposition, there's a sinful nature 
there's original sin, there's original guilt. However your theological system wants to cast it, God made it that way. God chose to make all creation susceptible to sin, and so now it grows thorns and thistles, and it makes animals carnivorous in response, and roll out the carpet for death and disease and natural disasters and murders and genocides all in the wake of sin. God didn't have to make it so that child cancer and diseases arose because of sin. Nothing is necessary about the outcome from sin that way. God could have just executed Adam, or he could have just quarantined off creation from the effects of moral, uh, of moral decisions, or he could have started over. He could have done a whole host of things. There's nothing that necessitates that because Adam sinned, children would die of leukemia and malaria and starvation. Those aren't necessary correlates, and on and on. The issues just from here, again, just mounted beyond measure. And I just couldn't, I could no longer justify paying the interest on that intellectual bill, let alone the principal payments. The interest alone on that became too high. The level of credulity needed to keep nodding along just became way too costly for me. Now, another reason, uh, sorry, I'm going to take a drink here. Another reason was just that I could no longer sustain the massive ad hoc Gordian knot tapestry of the attempts to reconcile various biblical passages. It's it, it just because too much, it just became too much to keep all the bumps in the carpet down. It kind of reminds me of that funny uh, quote in the Christmas story when Ralphie's narrating about his old man. And he says, in the heat of battle, my father wove a tapestry of obscenity that as far as we know is still hanging in space over Lake Michigan. I love that movie. I love that quote. In this case, it's not obscenities, but apologists do have to create an obscenely complex and overly ad hoc tapestry of explanations to try and dance around all of the problems in the Bible, to keep it all together, all the contradictions, the tensions, the textual changes, the theological issues, the transmission issues about if we even have what the text is, uh, if, if, if uh, what the text says Jesus said is actually what Jesus said, which sometimes seems impossible because what's said in Greek only makes sense as a Greek pun, wouldn't have made sense in, in, in the Aramaic or vice versa. So again, I plan to have several episodes on these, but let me give some examples of all the different facts of all the different stories around. Uh, sorry, let me let me give some examples, such as uh, different facts around the different stories of Jesus's death and burial and resurrection. Here, I agree with Bart Ehrman that often apologists will have to create a whole new gospel amalgamation that actually does violence to the original beauty and theological significance of the original gospel and, and its original author in order to try to weave them all together. That is, to reconcile some gospel narratives together. The apologists actually have to diminish the genius of the original gospel author, okay? A good example of this is when we talk about what day and time Jesus was crucified. In Mark, it's clearly the morning of the Passover at about noon. But in John, it's about 9 a.m. the morning before on the morning of preparation. Now, some apologists will try to smooth this over and they'll say that Mark is talking about the Passover. But what John is talking about is the day of preparation for the Sabbath, not the day of preparation for Passover. So they could actually be talking about the same day. That is, if Passover fell on a Thursday night to Friday morning, that would be the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So it could be the same day. The problem is that for John, the reason why he wants Jesus to be crucified on the day of preparation of the Passover is precisely because of the theological imagery of Jesus being the Lamb of God, the scapegoat sacrificed and butchered on our behalf. Well, the significance is only attached to the day of preparation for the Passover and not the Sabbath more generally. The Lamb of God theme barrels through the entire Gospel of John, starting with multiple statements of John in the first chapter, such as 129, where Jesus being the Lamb of God is specifically tied to Jesus's taking away the sin of the world, a clear illusion and foreshadowing of his saving death. 
This is repeated in 136, and so when Jesus is crucified, it's part of John's theological genius that he ties it to the slaughter of the lambs on the day of preparation for the Passover. The Sabbath is brought in, in in the statement of John not to explain Jesus's crucifixion, but rather why his body had to be removed and buried. And notice that even if you buy the rather ad hoc explanation to reconcile the differences in the days, they still get the hours wrong. One says 9 a.m., one says noon. Now, is that a huge problem? No. In fact, neither would be a big problem if one got the day or the or the time wrong. I mean, if you ask or, or if I ask you 30 years from now about what day of the week or the exact time of day something happened 30 or 60 years before that, I wouldn't blame you or think you were lying or making it all up just because you may get what day of the week or hour it was wrong or different than someone else that I asked the same question to. But The reason why this is important is it goes to the broader issue of the kinds of explanations and contortionary circles that biblical apologists are willing to go through. And there's no end to these. For example, the fifth plague of God on Egypt killed all of the livestock of the Egyptians. But the final plague killed all the firstborn of the livestock. But they all died. So... How is there still livestock? Paul tells us in Galatians that at his conversion, he didn't go and consult any of uh, the apostles for three years. And only then it was Peter and James, Jesus' brother. In Acts, he goes right away to them and meets most of the apostles. So which is it? What about the cause of suffering? Is it that the righteous suffer to be Christ-like? Is it that the unrighteous suffer as God punishes them? Is it that the righteous suffer while the unrighteous prosper? Is it the righteous suffer as a means of God to bless them? And so on. Well, it depends on what passage you read. Does God love and want all to be saved, or does he hate some and hide the gospel from them? Depends on what passage you read. Does God hold the sins of the father against his children, or does he not? As I presented above, it depends on what passage you read, and on and on. Now, This does not mean that I think all of the objections made against the Bible are good. Many of them are dumb, really dumb. When someone says the Bible cannot be true because it says bats are birds, I still roll my my eyes so hard I might pull a muscle. Like, it's just dumb. And this also doesn't mean that there are not ways to get around or reconcile these conflicting passages. Someone who's creative with sufficient motivation can reconcile any two texts together, no matter how absurd or how ad hoc the explanation is. So I'm not saying that there's no proposed answer or solution to them. It's just that after years and years, it started to look like a big put-up job. And while some explanations could be possible, a lot of them are just really, really bizarre and really ad hoc and really implausible. And when you start putting those things together, you start putting bottomless buckets inside of bottomless buckets inside of bottomless buckets and expecting it to hold three buckets full of water. There's a problem. The mountain of ad hoc explanations just became too big for me to continue to see it as an intellectually honest exercise for me to continue. Now, before going into my final section, I want to answer um, and and give uh, a response. I want to answer a kind of response I've gotten to these concerns. And that is that these really are only problems for a certain kind of Christianity. Um, The kind that holds to some manner of inspiration or inerrancy. And that rather than rejecting Christianity, I could just go progressive and deny those. Now, I'll admit that is possible, but there's a problem. I just think progressive Christianity is vacuous and self-serving and so wildly subjective that it really is no better than just inventing my own religion because that's really what it is, or at least what it seems like to me. I get to pick and choose which verses I like, which ones I don't. I can make them mean whatever I mean to hell with context. I can make them mean whatever makes me comfortable. God's love, so anything that I think is mean or uncomfortable or I don't like, I just cut those out of the Bible. 
except for Jesus, who I then would have to completely reimagine in my own image to make him more palatable to me personally in the 21st century. But then that would be different morally to those who did it in the 16th century, and those in the 18th century, and those in the 24th century, and so on. <clears throat> so it just strikes me that the progressive impulse today is just wildly Western, often really American, somewhat narcissistic, and culturally tethered to be completely honest. That is, I don't think highly enough of myself to think that I can create my own Christian religion in my own image. It seems to me that the only Christianity worth believing and, and worth actually having a, a, some type of commitment to would be a crunchy, old-timey, robust Christianity of the his, historically orthodox and theologically consistent uh, variety that takes the Bible as objectively inspired revelation from, from God. Without that, I don't even know why I would worship God or Jesus because I don't know why Jesus would have had to come and die on the cross or why he would have to come again or why there would be judgment or why read the Bible at all at, at, at that point, to be, to be honest, because I can make it whatever I want. So in the same way that I think views like open theism or universalism are just so utterly untethered from the text and so theologically incoherent and hermeneutically irresponsible, and so I could never see them as a valid alternative, so too progressive theology also just has no appeal to me at this point. Now, the next two objections, which I'll get into, are things that I did not come to believe were demonstrably false, but I just found that... Um, I just I just found that the justifications for them were far weaker than what I had previously thought and were largely faith commitments in order to really remain consistent in other areas. So what are they? First, the resurrection. Okay, I found arguments for the resurrection uh, that were made were a variety that uh, I mentioned above where they committed a kind of Mott and Bailey fallacy in which they sought to demonstrate some uncontested fact, like that the Gospels were historically reliable broadly on things like names and places, but then they tried to squeeze some other kind of supernatural or miraculous juice from that, that therefore all the miracle claims are true, or the resurrection claim, or the theological statements are true, or they would move from the gospels being early to therefore they're reliable on, claim, uh, on claiming Jesus rose from the dead. This kind of Mott and Bailey fallacy was pervasive in pretty much all cases that I saw for the, the reliability of the scriptures, and in some of the cases for the resurrection, not all. The minimal facts case for the resurrection specifically, like those from Habermas, Lacona, and Craig, seemed sometimes to commit the same error, not always. But what I found interesting was that even maximalists like McGrew would point this out. So this isn't some kind of super skeptical claim made by the unbelievers. But <clears throat> then what about McGrew and McClatchy's maximal case? Well, in that, in that regard, it's hard for me to see how they aren't just begging the question when they seem to simply presume the theological and supernatural reliability of the text as a basis for the argument to go through. Now again, I'm going to have full episodes interacting with both minimal and maximal fact uh, views. So please don't think that this one paragraph summary of interaction with them is my flippantly hand-waving them away. I've studied these for years. Again, I'm simply stating the variety of intellectual challenges to my prior Christian beliefs that all started cropping up at the same time and culminated in my, in my deconversion. Okay, the final big category that caused me issues was the atonement. Now, this one is a bit more complicated, and this may have been one area where Reformed theology may have played a role in my deconversion, but only indirectly. And if, when, if I'm honestly think about it, since there were other views are more problematic and less exegetically supportable, that therefore, even when I deconverted uh, because of this issue or part of it, and it was in the shape of Reformed theology, I probably would have de deconverted sooner and just in a different shape had I been convinced of some other view. And again, to be even more fair, this may not be entirely a reform problem, but it could be an Augustinian or even just an orthodox problem. So it's, it may not even be accurate to say that this is a reform shape issue. 
But I did find that the consistent proponents of the views, like the ones I'll mention, were primarily reformed because they were the ones that I found to be the most academically robust and consistent. Now, I put out some posts on my social media in the past month or so challenging the analogies that people give to try to overcome questions about salvation and judgment. For example, the problem of the analogy that salvation is like a present and you only experience the benefits if you choose to open it. Remember, I'm going to go into this in further episodes, but basically the issue I have comes from the problems that arise when we ask whether or not Jesus accomplished salvation or if he merely made salvation possible. I think that it's clear from the Bible that the biblical authors believed that Jesus actually did accomplish the atonement on the cross, that he really did take our sin, paid the penalty due to it, and actually propitiated or turned away or satisfied all of the wrath of God due to the sins that he paid for. So my first issue was that I just don't think that I could rationally accept a view as biblical that held to a kind of escrow or provisionist view of the atonement, that Jesus paid the price in general and in, in, a, in an abstract way, and that his blood is held in some kind of celestial escrow that we can draw on when we believe. Those views are just outside of what I think is exegetically responsible. It also seems to me that some form of penal substitutionary atonement is clearly taught in the Bible, that the view of the biblical authors is that Jesus was the substitute who died in the place of sinners and who took the punishment upon himself. He died in their place and procured their salvation then on the cross. The, The biblical authors viewed him as the actual savior of his people, not a potential savior of a faceless group. Now, other views of the atonement may be correct, such as a moral influence view or a government view or a Christus Victor view, but I take it that those views would be true in tandem with the penal substitutionary view. They don't undermine it or replace it, but they augment it. That the atonement in the Bible may accomplish more than the substitutionary view, but it doesn't accomplish less than that. That it may be more than a legal or a commercial transaction, but it isn't less than that. And so it seems that for those for whom Christ died, forgiveness and the turning away of God's wrath for sin has been accomplished already. Okay, so then what? Well, why then do any not, sorry, why then do any who do not believe suffer wrath in hell. It seems to me that one must commit themselves to either some kind of universalism or a limited view of the atonement like what we find in Reformed theology. However, if universalism is true, then it's unclear on how we should read huge sections of the Bible. So Christianity may end up being universalistic, But biblical Christianity is not. And again, see my comments above about why I think the only type of Christianity worth believing is biblical Christianity. So I'd have to give up the Bible, uh, and I, uh, sorry, I'd have to give up what what, uh, the Bible I thought on that view anyway, which I mentioned above, would just be a view that isn't appealing and would feel like throwing out the inspirational baby with the atonement bathwater. Now, I'll talk more in later episodes on universalism and why I would reject it, even if one is willing to reject the Bible. But for now, again, let it suffice to say that it seems to me that the only kind of Christianity worth believing is the one that does have some kind of significant revelational claim that does not turn that very same revelation into kind of an incoherent subjective wax nose. But what about the other side? What about the reformed side, the limited atonement side? What was the issue there? I mean... Wouldn't the limited atonement solve the tension? Well, sort of. And it's why Reformed theology probably actually preserved me in the faith longer than I probably would have had I affirmed some other view. But then the problem here uh, was just, why? Why couldn't God just atone and supernaturally regenerate all people? I mean... He could have his own sufficient reasons, like for his own glory, or display mercy to his people, like in Romans 8, sure. But why not display mercy to all people, so that they all still could give you glory? 
Why not atone for the fallen angels? Are they not moral agents either? While I think Reformed exegetes are far more hermeneutically sound and actually exegete passages in a far more accurate way than the non, their non-Reformed kin, it didn't resolve the theological issues that such a view entails. Basically, if the reform view is true, and I think it's more likely true than its competitors, and it solves way more of the issues, it still entails some other problems, such as, why isn't universalism true? God being in absolute control and having the ability to call whomever he desires and regenerate all whom he wills, that would be the best grounds for universalism possible. But that's not what an exegetically responsible reading of the Bible presents, which is what the Reformed scholars are best at. Do you see, do you see the, the tension? So the view that I think takes the Bible the, the most exegetically, responsibly, and seriously means that it also cannot simply dismiss the passages about reprobates and judgment and damnation in the same way that the universalists and the progressives do. That is, it's precisely because I think that the reform view is so true to the text and won't treat it like a theological wax nose that I found the tension to be insurmountable and it can't answer it because it can't it can't avail itself of the same type of answers that the ones who don't take the passages as exegetically responsibly can. Okay, with all that said, I'm going to wrap up this episode. I'm going to go to the questions. I do have some discussions, again, uh, on uh, uh, coming up on the books uh, in the coming weeks, dealing with divine determinism, compatibilism, divine hiddenness, and so forth. So if you like this content and want to see more, please hit the subscribe button. I'm, I'm only a few dozen subscribers away from the 1,000 mark, which is an awesome mark to get to. So please subscribe, share, like, do all the fun things uh, that YouTube allows you to do. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe wherever you stream your podcast from and consider giving a review on iTunes if uh, possible. So I'm gonna dive into the comments now uh, and see uh, what's there. Uh, let's see. Uh, Ignacio de la Cruz said, your Calvinist presuppositions continue to harm your thinking. I'm not a Calvinist. I don't have Calvinist presuppositions. You'd, you'd have to, you know, explicate what that is and why that's, uh, there. Um, Tyler, what church fathers or figures did you study on the topic of eternal possession? Uh, I was just curious. I, I did not honestly go into many of the church fathers. I dealt with the theological, uh, the, the current theological state of the debate. I didn't, to be honest, while I appreciate the church fathers and I think they're interesting, I don't think they're very good at um, resolving theological issues or tensions because they're not doing systematic theology. They're not actually engaging in that type of exercise. So when we're talking about theological and systematic theological issues, I just don't find them uh, to be that, that helpful. Uh, Spartan asked, did you ever consider universalism or do you just not see it as a live option? I answered that in the, in the, in, in the, in the, um, uh, in the, in the episode. Um, I, I've, I've read some, uh, some of the universalist stuff. I've watched the videos, you know, I've, I've read David Bentley Hart and others. I, I just don't find it compelling. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's a live option. I don't think it should be for anyone, um, who, who, I, I don't think it's a serious Christian position to be completely honest, uh, for the same reason. I don't think, um, uh, progressive Christianity or uh, open theism is. Um, let's see. The revelation. So Spartan says the, the the revelation is Jesus, not the Bible. Um, that that's an equivocation. I think uh, yes, according to the Bible, Jesus is the revelation. But according to the revealed Bible, Jesus is the revelation. Uh, Jesus is the revelation of God in the uh, in the material sense, in the, in the ontological sense. But the Bible is the revelation of God, right? Not not the revelation. Or the Bible isn't God in the same way Jesus is. Uh, different genitive uses. Um, <clears throat> how did you get the revelation outside of the Bible? I'm not sure if that. I think that might actually be. Um, I think that's a rejoinder to Spartan's comment that the revelation is Jesus and not the Bible. He's saying, okay, but how do you get the revelation of Jesus? without the Bible. Uh, I think that's what he's uh, getting at. They, they seem to be having a side uh, discussion. All right, so um, there do doesn't seem to be many other questions or anything coming through. I've been going now for almost an hour, so I'm going to cut this off. Again, 
Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or you can come on by the group page page on Facebook and join in the discussion. As always, again, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful day.